0: All right. We are in First Peter chapter one. I'm going to read to you verses three through nine. My intention is to get through these verses for the most part. We probably will be uh, we'll probably be dealing with verse nine again next week. But for tonight, we're going to I'm going to read through verse through chapter one verses three through nine, and we'll just see how far we get. Uh, it says, "Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ." In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Peter has done his salutation. We've taken two weeks to deal with the intro and Peter's salutation. But now he goes into a, almost like a hymn of praise and thanksgiving. He says, praise be to God. And 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 what I thought about when I was looking at this is, remember the old hymn, To God be the glory, great things He has done. And I think this is kind of the, the attitude. And you're going to see this. You're going to see a mixture of, of praise and hymnology almost. You're going to see a mixture of... Uh, Peter preaching a sermon. There's some things he does in this letter that if you understand it more in the Greek and see how he wrote it, you'll see some things and we'll get to all that. But Peter is now, as he's just greeted them and talked to them about how they've been chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ and how the Spirit's going to do His work of sanctification and they've been sprinkled by His blood and the new covenant, he now breaks into praise and says... Praise be to God for what He's done. And then, so we're going to take a look now at breaking this down a little bit. What has He done? Well, the first thing we see here is that He's given us new birth. And and I want to take some time to deal with this. It's a term that we hear a lot as Christians about being born again and all that. But I I think because it's become such a common term that we actually have lost sight of the depth of what it actually means. We hear about born again Christians and whatever. And unfortunately, for a while, um, that term became to mean anything that was different. You know, Uh, an athlete can have a born again career, you know, and different things like that. But I want us to look scripturally what it talks about. So go to John chapter 3. We're going to look at four different passages passages that talk about this new birth. John chapter 3. And look at verse 3. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and in, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, we're not going to take the time tonight to deal with this section where Nicodemus says, well, how can a man be born again if he's old? Can he go back into his mother's womb? What kind of born again are you talking about? And then Jesus in this section goes and says, flesh give birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So Jesus said this, though. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. There needs to be a new birth of some sort. Well, we're not going to turn there for the sake of time, but in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, if anyone is in Christ, they are what? A new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. I I want you to see yourself in the way in which the Bible describes you as a new creation. God has done something new in your life. The old you is gone, the new has come. Now most of us say, wait a minute, I still struggle with sin. And as you've heard me talk about before, that's because your flesh is still under the curse. Your flesh has not been redeemed. But in your spirit, you are a new creation. God has put a new you in you, if you will, through His Spirit coming to indwell you, He has done something in you that is not that He's cleaned you up and you need to try to do better. He has made you new. You have been born again, a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. I'm, many of us uh, grow up singing the old song, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Problem is, that's not who you are anymore. Now, do we still sin? Yes. We're not saying we don't still struggle with sin. The flesh is still wrestling against us. But you're not a sinner anymore that has been saved by grace. You're a new creation. You're a child of God. You've been born again. Don't see yourself as the same old person whom God has done a work of refining. You have been made new. And it becomes even more clear. Go to John chapter 1. We're in John 3. Go to John chapter 1. Look at verses 12 through 13. It says, yet to all who received Him, talking about Jesus, as it just said that He came to his, which was His own, the Jews, and the Jews didn't receive Him. And he came to that which was His own, they didn't receive Him. But look at verse 12. Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Listen closely. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God, this is not a human type of a birth. He's saying this is a new birth. That who accomplishes this new birth? God does. By the way, um, God has amazingly given us the, the the opportunity to be parents, to be pictures of who He is. How do we do? Not so good most of the time, do we? Every now and then we try real hard to be pictures of who Christ is and how God deals with us as, as, as His children. And we don't always be the best picture. But I can tell you this something about God. Whatever He does, He does perfectly. And if you have been born again, not of human decision or natural descent, we're not talking that kind of born again. Not even a husband's will. I'm talking about born of God. Keep that in mind. He has done something new in your life. Praise be to God for this new birth. Go to Galatians 6. This is my favorite one though. Galatians 6, look at verse 15. Now if you have never memorized this verse, put it in your heart. Galatians chapter 6, verse 15. Because it will be a foundational passage for you as you deal in this life with who you really are in Christ. At the end of his section, as he's dealing with grace, he says here in Galatians 6, he says in verse 15, "...neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation." In other words, he's been dealing with those who have been trying to say, well, in order for you to be right with God, you have to do certain things. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow certain legalistic rules. And all through this whole book, he's been trying to blow up that idea. He even said, say, hey, he said, if anybody preaches to you any other gospel other than the one has been preached, may he be damned, he says. May he go to hell. That's what he's literally saying. And then he also goes on and says about these circumcisers. Later on he gets so frustrated with them, he says, let them cut everything off. Do you think Paul's pretty serious about wanting us to understand the truth? By the way, if you don't believe me, you go read the book of Galatians, you'll see everything I just said. He says. He understands that we... Cannot try to tie in any of our effort into this salvation, into this relationship, into this new birth. It is something that God gives us. It is a gift. It is done by Him. And you cannot try to tie in a little bit of the old with the new. You're a new creation. What matters is not circumcision or uncircumcision, what matters is a new creation. And folks, most of us as Christians never really ever learn to start there as we begin to understand who we are in Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us what? New birth. He's given you new birth. Makes you want to break into To God be the glory. Great things He has done, doesn't it? Oh, but there's more than this. He's also given us a living hope. Now, I want you to kind of chew on this for a little bit. The word hope in the Bible actually means more of a confidence. We hear the word hope and we think, I hope I don't hit any red lights on the way to work because I'm late. You know, we we, we hear hope and we think we're looking for something, but we're not sure if it will happen or not. No, the biblical definition of the word hope is a confidence. And he says it's a living hope, though. In other words, this hope is active. And I'm going to show you an example of it. But I, I wrote down, it's a hope that refuses to die or give up. He's given us a living hope, a hope that refuses to die or give up. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. You'll see a picture of it. In verse 13 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, he says, Therefore prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope, that's confidence, fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Do you see it? You put your hope fully on on what he said he would do. That's the wonderful definition of a living hope. Praise be to the God and the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. He has given us new, mirth, new birth into a living hope. But how has he done this? Christ. Through Christ. But look closely at this passage. Through what about Christ? Through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. This is important. I want you to kind of think about this for a second here. The disciples walked with Jesus for three years. They saw Him perform miracles, did they not? They saw Him heal people. They saw Him uh, uh, feed over 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. They saw Him raise Lazarus from the dead. They saw Him raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. They saw Him do many more miracles than we even have recorded, John says. More things He did, but if we wrote down everything He did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain all that was written. He, they saw Him do a lot of amazing stuff. Yet, after He was crucified... What did they do? They went and hid. They went and hid in an upper room for fear. Then why all of a sudden, what happened that made this group of guys who had been with Jesus and seen all His power and seen His miracles and lived with Him for three years, what had them go from hiding in that upper room to all of a sudden boldly preaching everywhere all over the world about Jesus? Holy Spirit came boldly. They saw the resurrected Jesus. Folks, think about this now. It's the resurrection of Jesus that has the tremendous power. That's why in one of Paul's books he talks about that we may know the power of His resurrection. Praise God for what He's done on the cross. Don't even hear me say that I'm belittling what He accomplished on the cross. But it's through the power of Jesus' resurrection by His own power. That we have been given this new birth into the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What I want to do is I want to talk to you about three things that I want to pull out about His resurrection. In other words, Jesus' resurrection gives proof of our life after death as well. Jesus' resurrection from the dead gives proof of the fact that you and I will live again after this life. Now, there have been many false prophets throughout the years. There have been many people who claim to be prophets. Ah, we know about Buddha, we know about some of uh, others like that who say that they have ways to God. And that there is a life after this, and here are the things you do to get there. What happened to each of those so-called prophets? They died. Do we know in this life whether or not what they said was true? There's no way for us to know. But there's a difference between them and Jesus. Because Jesus rose from the dead Himself physically, visibly, on this earth by His own power, He did what He said He would do, that He would give to us, new birth, new life. And instead of saying, well, I sure hope Jesus was right if there is some kind of life after this death, Jesus did it visibly on this earth. And folks, I will to challenge you, if you question this, it actually is one of the most provable historical events in the history of the world. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is one of the most provable historical facts in the world. It's an amazing thing that so many people try to pretend that it didn't really happen, and it's just you know something that Christians believe, but it didn't really. If you actually go do the research, it's one of the most provable events. Many who have come to faith have come to faith because they set out to prove Christianity wrong, and one of the best places they knew they could do it was let's prove that he really didn't rise from the dead. Let's go find that, that tomb that he's in, and we'll go take care of this. And as they did the research and they did the study, they find the Bible didn't just talk about Jesus rising from the dead. Historians at that time wrote about it as well. Josephus is one. Origin is another. Jesus, folks, did in this world what He said He would give for us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead gives proof that there's life after death for us as well. Oh, there's more to that, though. Jesus' uh, resurrection gives proof that Jesus is the truth. Now, remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then what did He say next? No, no one can come to the Father except through Me. I want you to understand something. Jesus' resurrection of the dead gives proof that not only that there is a life after death, but that He's the only way. Because remember, Jesus who proved that there was life after death by His own rising from the dead is the one who also said, oh by the way, everybody else is wrong. Anybody that says there's any other way for you to get to God, whether it's uh, following the pillars of Islam, or whether it's, it's uh, just trying to be a good person and following the law of God, anyone that tries to tell you there's another way to God, they're wrong. I'm the only way. People nowadays, if you would try to say that there's only one way to God and that's through Jesus, they say, well that's a bigoted statement. And and all you have to say is is look I didn't say it. Jesus said it. Jesus is the one who said he was the only way. So if anybody I know of Christians and I'm going to put that in quotes who think that Jesus is the way for them but there might be other ways. I'll say how can you faith you believe in the one who said he's the only way when you think there might be other ways. We we'll go to Acts chapter 17 look at verse 31. Yeah, did God really say? Acts 17, look at verse 31. For He, God, has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof of all this, a proof of this to all men by raising Him from the dead. Do you see it? God set a day when He will judge the world through the man He's appointed to judge the world, the one and only one. Well, who is it? Well, He's given proof of who it is by raising Him from the dead. Jesus' resurrection also has made possible His going to the Father so that we could receive His Spirit. I want to show you a couple of things and have you look at this in this way. Go to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, verses 5 through 7. John 16, verse 5, Jesus says, Now I am going to Him who sent Me, yet none of you asks Me where are you going. Because I have said these things, you're filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it's good for you that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the Counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And then you tie this in with John chapter 20. Look at chapter 20, verse 17. This is after Jesus rose from the dead. The women see Him in the, in the garden, and they grab onto Him, and He says, Do not hold on to Me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now unfortunately there are those who are trying to say that Jesus was suffering in hell for those three days and he hadn't. now that he's risen from the dead he hadn't yet been to the Father. That's not really what it's saying. What Jesus is saying is, you're holding on to me because you don't want me to leave. Don't hold on to me. When I go to the Father, then I can come back. And be with you all through the Spirit. Remember he said, it's good for you that I'm going away. Because if I go away, then I can come back and be with you so I can be with you always. Jesus' resurrection made possible. His going to the Father so that we could receive His Spirit. And as you already talked about, even though they saw Him do the miracles, and they had walked with Him for three years, and they had seen all that, even after watching Him crucified, the reason they hid in fear was, in and of themselves, it didn't matter what they had seen, They still were afraid. But when He rose from the dead and He appeared to them and showed that He was still alive and then His Spirit came to indwell them, it wasn't them who went all over the world and preached the Gospel. It was who? It was God Himself through them who was doing His work. It wasn't that they were new people now in the sense that they were doing a job. No, they were new people, but it wasn't because they were doing it. It was God doing it Through them. Listen to me. The Bible, Jesus said, I don't want to leave you as orphans. I want to send you a helper. You've heard me say this before. I'm going to say it again. You need help. I need help. You're a new creation. God Himself is living within you. He's given you a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that means that the same God who by His own power rose from the dead is now the one who lives within you. And all of that power is at His disposal. Our job is to what? Well, we've been chosen for obedience. We are to yield ourselves and say, Lord, Your will be done. But not only that, I'm going to act believing that You will do it. And when we do, that new birth becomes evident to the people around us. The problem is, most of us think we're going to heaven when we die because Jesus has forgiven us of our sins, but we're just a sinner saved by grace. And we think we're the same old person. We don't understand that there's been a new birth. I remember a very interesting situation in the story of uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. He makes a statement. He says, unwrap the grave clothes. And I, I thought about that passage for a while. And I thought about this. What if the next morning, Lazarus is back at home with Mary and, and Martha, and he gets up and he starts wrapping himself in grave clothes to get dressed. And his sister walks by the room and says, What are you doing? He says, I'm getting dressed. And, uh, and she says, Yeah, but you're putting on grave clothes. He said, Well, that's what I wore yesterday. And she'll say, yesterday you were dead. Today you have been made new. You're alive. Take off the grave clothes. And folks, I'm going to say to you the same thing. Stop living like you used to live. You're not the same person. You're new. You've got to understand that. And you've got to get up every day and believe I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ. Praise God for that great things He has done. And on top of that, if you go back here to First Peter, you'll see that He says He's also given us inheritance... And or actually given us an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. I'm not going to take a lot of time here because you've heard me teach on the fact that once you're saved, you are eternally secure, and that God is the one who holds their salvation. But this is one of the most awesome passages that proves it, you know, he's, he's given us into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for us. It has nothing to do with how well you're doing. Why? Because circumcision or uncircumcision means nothing. What really counts is what? A new creation. If you're born again, if you've been made new through the power of Jesus Christ, that's what God is dealing with. That's what God looks at. But there's something here in the Greek that I want to take some time to show you. There are three Greek words, and I'm going to try my best to pronounce them. But what we translate as um, never perish, never spoil, or never fade here in the NIV are the three words aptharton, which means imperishable, Amianton, which means undefiled, and Amaranton, which means unwithering. I'm going to say it again. Aptharton, which is imperishable, Amianton, which means undefiled, and Amaranton, which means unwithering. What have you noticed about those three words I just told you in the Greek? They all start with the same word, same letter, don't they? I thought Adrian Rogers was the first one that alliterated. Actually, Peter alliterates in his sex, this section here, and he chooses words that all start with, and what we would say, un, or imperishable, undefiled, unwithering. Just like a preacher would alliterate, which I don't always do, but just like we, a lot of preachers alliterate, Peter alliterated here to prove a point. It's almost like he's preaching at him now, isn't it? He starts off with the theme of praise. Praise be to God for the things He's done. And then in the middle of this sermon, He says you've been given an imperishable inheritance, an undefiled inheritance, an unwithering inheritance. And actually, if you want to, you can do a study of those words and find out the depth behind some of those things. And for the sake of time, I just didn't want to get bogged down on it. But there are some cool pictures in there of the fact that, let's take the third one, for example, Amarantan. When he says it's unwithering, it's actually tied in with back in those days, they would have the Greek games, you know, and they would tr- try to win the Olympics, if you will, if it, or, or the, the athletic contests. What did they receive if they won? They found a, a crown, but what was it made out of? Laurel. Laurel leaves. And what happened over time? It withered. This is where that word picture is coming from. You're, giving an in- you're receiving an inheritance that won't wither. You're getting an inheritance that won't wither. And it's kept in heaven for you. And so that's just such a cool deal. But then he says something here that I have skipped over most of my life. And I, I could quote you this whole passage. I've memorized this passage of 1 Peter for years, and I've got it in my heart, and i meditated on it a lot. But I missed something in here that he said, and I don't want you to miss it, because as I broke, took the time to study it some more, it jumped out at me. It says in verse 5, "...who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation..." that is ready to be revealed in the last time. All of a sudden you have to think about this. Hey, wait a minute, I thought I already had salvation. What does it mean salvation is coming? I thought I already had it. So actually, the word salvation is used many ways in the New Testament. There are many words that are translated in our English language, salvation. There's more than one that the Greek uses to to describe salvation. We translate it salvation, but there are many different kinds. But there are three main ones that are used. And and one, for example, is this. Salvation can refer to the initial experience of coming to know the Savior. Uh, Put a bookmark here in 1 Peter and go with me to Luke 19. I'll show you an example of that. Luke 19, verses 9 and 10. In Luke 19, Jesus has been at Zacchaeus' house. And at verses 9 and 10, Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. We see the word salvation there is the Greek word that kind of means the initial experience of coming to know the Savior. Alright? When you got saved, your salvation began. That's the picture of that word, salvation. You understood? You still with me? Alright? Now, there also, though, salvation in the Bible can refer to the process of cooperating with God to work on a possession until it's finished product. Alright? I'm going to say that again. Salvation can also refer to the process of cooperating with God. As he works on his possession until it's a finished product. Uh, you do have heard me say before, your salvation is a point and a process, right? You are saved, but you're also being saved, the scripture says. Go, go to Philippians 2. It's, a, it's part of the sanctification process, but it's a part of your salvation. It came with the, with the salvation you received when you were born again. What came with it was the sanctification process. Oh, and again, whose job is it to sanctify you? We saw that last week. It's God's. He knew what you received when you got saved. We just think, well, I got saved. I'll get to go to heaven. No, Christian, you have no idea. That's why a lot of Christians struggle with, what's going on? What's happening to me? Why does it feel like I'm struggling so much? That's because you're in the process of being conformed in the image of Christ, but you don't know that you're in the works and that God's working on you. You think you're supposed to just be saved and God loves you until you die. You don't understand. You're a project between that salvation and what we're doing. Fred, you raised your hand a bit ago. Do you even remember why? <laughs> <laughs> uh, is it continuing the salvation or sanctification? We go salvation, sanctification, and The answer is yes. Of glorification? Is well, definitely I mean? we have justification, sanctification, and glorification. But actually, biblically, as you're about to see, the word salvation can apply to all three. Salvation can apply to the saving point. Salvation can apply to the sanctification process. And you're going to see salvation applies to the glorification process. The word It's all a part of your salvation. See, again, most Christians don't understand this. You've got a, you've got a whole lot more coming than just, I'm going to heaven when I die. You are now in the salvation process. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Look at verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. Do you see it? Wait a minute, what do you mean I have to work out my salvation? I thought I've already been saved. Yes, you've been saved, but you're being saved. See, the word salvation is used in many ways. One of them is the initial point of coming to the Lord. Another one, translated salvation here, is the process of God conforming His possession into what He plans on it becoming. Folks, listen to me. Rest in that fact. The Father who's working on you loves you. He knows what you can handle. He knows what you can't. He knows what will push you past that point where you'll give up trying to do it yourself so that you'll finally let Him. And He is working on you. Stop thinking, well, I'm a Christian now. Why is life so hard. You're going to see as we go on further why life will be hard for us who are in Christ. Part of it is because we're being worked on by our Father in the ways that those who don't know Him aren't. Remember, Father disciplines who? The ones He loves, the ones he loves who are what? His children. He's not disciplining those who aren't His. That's why in Psalm 73 the psalmist says, I envied those who do not know God. They have ease of life and they're wealthy and healthy and everything seems to go well for them. And I thought, what's the point? So you go double check. That's what Psalm 73 says. But then I came to realize what's going to happen in the end result with them and what's going to happen in the end result with me. And I yielded myself to His plan for my life. You have been saved, yes, at the initial point of salvation. Salvation has come to your house, if you will. But you're in the process of being saved. Work out that salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, take it seriously. The fact that you're in this process of being conformed in the sanctifying work of the Spirit. But it's God who does the work. It's not up to you to live a better life and do a better job. You can't. can't. But there's also a third dimension... Salvation can also refer to the final victory and consummation of God's work of redemption at the end of time. Let me say it again. Salvation can also refer to the final victory and the consummation of God's work of redemption at the end of time. Go to Romans chapter 13. Look at verses 11 and 12. Romans thirteen verses eleven and twelve, Paul says, "And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over; the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light." Wait a minute. <laughs> I thought salvation happened when I came to know Jesus. Yes, it did. But I thought you just said we're in the process of salvation where He's conforming us into His image. Yes, you're in the process of salvation. But here it says that the salvation hasn't come yet. Our salvation is nearer. Yes, there's three parts to your salvation, at least, that we know of. There may be way more that God hasn't even told us about. But it's this much we can see scripturally, that we're saved at the point, and salvation has begun when we come to know Him. We're in the process of salvation as He's conforming us in this life. Otherwise, when you got saved, you could just go to heaven. But for some reason, He doesn't do it that way, does He? Trust Him as your Savior, and okay, He's done take it away with Him. No, He leaves us on this earth for the process of salvation. But there's a coming salvation, folks. And it's ready to be revealed. And look at Hebrews 9.28. Let me show you another example of it. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring what? Salvation to those who are waiting for Him. Well, why is He bringing me salvation? When I've already received salvation and I'm in the process of salvation because what all came with my initial coming to know Jesus was a much bigger package than I ever came to realize. Oh, and by the way, go back here to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. This word salvation is in the form of the third one. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. I'm just going to give you a touch of what Jesus has said about this. But folks, as awesome as it was that you were born again and given a new birth, I think the Bible teaches that it pales in comparison with what will be revealed. As cool as it is, I'm starting to see it as cool, that I'm letting God accomplish His work of salvation in me i stopped trying to help him. Those who have known me for years, you know that you say, well, what a gifted person and blah, blah, blah. You don't know the struggles I had in ministry, even though it was successful in man's eyes. Because I felt it was up to me. And I wasn't doing good enough. And I didn't work hard enough. And man, I could have done better. And I would beat myself up. People would never know this, but I struggled with most of my life in ministry because I wasn't doing enough. Because I didn't understand that this salvation was God's process and not mine. But as I've begun to rest in that and understand grace... Understand what this new birth means. I have begun to enjoy this aspect of salvation. I don't want to make it sound bad, okay, so please hear me. But I praise God for when He saved me in September 1973. And I still remember that day when His Spirit came to indwell me and I was His. I remember being baptized and feeling like stained glass was... I was a piece of stained glass and the sun was shining through me. I was baptized outdoors in a pond. I came out of the water and I felt like a piece of stained glass. I really did. I felt like the sun was just shining through me. But you know what? I'm starting to experience now in my walk with Christ an experience of... His salvation process that is actually starting to supersede how that felt. I'm seeing Jesus become able to take control, and I'm experiencing the peace and the joy that Peter talks about here that we may not get to tonight because I'm preaching. But but at the same time, the Bible says that the next aspect of salvation, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, mind has not conceived what God has in store for those who love Him. So salvation takes us from the presence of sin into the presence of God. You got it. Salvation takes us from the presence of sin into the presence of God. At that point and in a process. It definitely took it from the presence of sin into the presence of God. We're able to go into His throne room. Yet, He's still in the process of conforming Him into what He wants us to be. Folks, I can't wait to see what this coming salvation part is going to be like. And it's going to blow the first two parts away. Wow! And we just think that when we trusted Christ, we're now going to heaven when we die. There's so much more. There's so much more. It's time for us to wake up. Wake up! Stop hitting the snooze button. You know we do that, don't we? Anybody ever hit the snooze button? I'm the master at it. I actually set my alarm just for a couple of snooze hits. I love hitting the snooze button. I just, there's just something about, yeah, I'm kind of awake, but I don't have to get up yet. Boop, hit the button. And I have calculated in my head when I really need to get out of bed, and I set my alarm accordingly, and sometimes I'll think, I'm going to hit it three times today, and I'll set my alarm for that wake. But I, I don't really get up, do I? I wake up, but I really don't wake up, and I don't really get up. I acknowledge, you know what, yeah, I probably need to, but I don't really get up. And you know what? We've been doing that in church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday for so many years. The Spirit of God will speak through the preacher or through the message or through the song or through whatever it is, and we'll say, you know what? That's right! And we hit the snooze button. We go to Shoney's, and nothing changes. I don't know any more than to say to you, Wake up! There is so much more. If you haven't ever understood the difference in the joy between your salvation and what He's doing now, how are you ever going to understand what's still to come? And I will say it like Jim just did: you're missing out. That's why Paul would sit in prison and write, "I pray the eyes of your heart should be opened, so that you would know the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of the love of God." Yes, thank God for the fact you're saved. There's so much more. And we're more interested in who's going to win American Idol. Folks, you have been given a great and precious gift, this salvation. Don't say, thank God I'm saved and and I'm going to heaven when I die. and, And it's never going to perish, spoil, or fade. And then live your life as if you don't understand what all you just put on the shelf. Now Peter goes on to say this though. As we rejoice in this great salvation that we've received... Uh, We may may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Did you see how he says you may have to? I'm going to tell you, you probably will. But not everybody's trials are going to be the same. Not everybody's going to have the same level of testing and trying. Don't sit back and compare your trials to somebody else's. Don't think that it's because you're a worse kid or he's a better kid or whatever. Uh, no. God has his reasons for why he does what he does. And you need to understand that everything he does is perfect and rest in that. Don't get derailed from the salvation process by thinking that God's not fair. But you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. But why have these trials come? To prove your faith genuine. And I want to take some time right now to kind of run down a road of something that God showed me this, this week. And something that I've I've never kind of understood. It's a passage of scripture that has bothered me for a long, long time. Just recently, I was reading a little devotional by Vance Habner and he made this statement. He said, "Too many Christians are signpost Christians." If I were to ask you, these guys are men in motion today, can't answer. But if I were to ask you, are you a, are you a signpost Christian? Hopefully, you would not say yes, because as Vance Habner put it this way, he said, "A signpost." points the way to the city, but never goes there. And he said, too many Christians have all the correct information. We know how to point people to where they need to be. But how many of us ever live it? How many of us ever go there ourselves? And as I was teaching on that today, and I'd been studying for that, God began to show me a little bit about here, about what's going on. Yeah, you have one of the best ways to know whether or not your faith is real is to go through trials. We've tried to design a Christianity with no pain. We have tried to design... A lot of churches are full of that kind of preaching. We think, when trouble comes, what are the immediate reactions when we lose our job? Or, uh, what did I do wrong? Or, why me? Or, where is God? Isn't that how we react when stuff happens, when the latest thing happens, or the doctor gives you the latest report? Our first reaction is, what's wrong? What did I do wrong? Where's God? Why me? because we think somehow that if i do what i'm supposed to do and put my money in the plate and try to be a good believer in jesus we're not supposed to have these issues that makes god a genie it makes god a genie i actually had a friend of mine years ago who told me his son committed suicide and as he and i were driving to a funeral for somebody else i asked him you ever think about david and how much does going to the cemetery make you think about David? And he said, a lot. He said, but I'm going to tell you something. He said, back then when my son committed suicide, if you had asked me if I believed in the health and wealth of the gospel, I would have said no. But I came to realize through his death that I kind of did. Because when my son committed suicide, my first thought was, we did it all right. What went wrong? We raised him in the home, in a Christian home. We taught Sunday school. He, everything we were supposed to do, What happened? And he goes, I came to realize, I thought that if I did it all right, this stuff wouldn't happen. And I've had to come to realize the Bible doesn't say that it won't happen. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And folks, you know what? Praise God for what He's given us. But in the meantime, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come to prove that your faith is real. Go to Genesis 22. You see, if your faith doesn't work when things are falling apart, it's not worth having. If your faith only works when things are smooth, I think the Bible teaches it's not real faith. In Genesis 22... This is where God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And look at verse. Uh, we'll, we'll start in verse 9. Genesis 22, verse 9. When they had reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now, folks, I'm going to be really honest with you. This is a verse that I have known for years, and I have not understood it. And it wasn't until this week, and to be honest with you, this morning, that I finally got insight into what this verse is saying. Here's my problem with this verse. Doesn't God know everything? I mean, the Bible says He's omniscient, all-knowing. Actually, back in Genesis, I'm not going to tell you to turn there and, and, and read it, but in Genesis 18, as Abraham is about to plead for Sodom, God says this, Shall I not tell my friend what I'm about to do? Because Abraham's a guy that I know is going to be a wonderful man who's going to lead his children to obey me. And he knew how Abraham was all going to come out. The Bible says there's nothing God doesn't know. The Bible, I mean, that's why he's able to tell Peter when Peter said, I'll die for you. He said, actually, you won't. Not right now, anyway. Before the rooster crows tomorrow, you're going to deny three times you know me. Abraham, your descendants are going to be in slavery for over 400 years. Then they're going to come out with great possession. How is God able to tell in this prophecy of what's going to happen and all this stuff in the world? By the way, if you've been watching the news, uh, if you don't know the prophecy in Isaiah 17, there's a prophecy in Isaiah 17 that says that Damascus, Syria, will be there at night, and then the morning it will be gone. That hasn't happened yet, and it's going to in the days to come. And just in the last few weeks, Assad, the leader of Syria, has said that if anybody causes them any trouble, they're going to send rockets into Tel Aviv. Netanyahu responded and said, if one rocket makes its way over here, Damascus will no longer exist. And I'm sitting there going, I've read the Bible. He just quoted the Bible. (laughs) then how can God say, now I know you fear me? Because He was revealing to Abraham that His faith was made to Definitely He was revealing to Abraham, but there's more to it because God said, now I know. I've tried to make this seem better, and it's bugged me. Did God, already know? God already knew. So why does He say, now I know? Here's the answer. The word know in the Hebrew is yada. All right, and that word yada means an experiential knowledge. It's only known through experience. In other words, you can know something and then you can experience something. Do you understand the difference? And this is—I know, kinda. Ever, ever been a pastor? What it's like to lose a child? But I don't yada what it means. Do you understand? It's not an experience. What God says to Abraham here is, I've known all along. Now I've experienced it. What I have known, I experience. Folks, do you have faith in God? You can say yes. Oh, you, you, you know you have faith in God, but it isn't until you go through whatever it is you go through that you know the experiential knowledge. These trials are actually good things. Stop thinking you've done something wrong. Stop thinking that something went wrong in your Christianity. Praise and His great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, and fade, kept in heaven for you who are shielded by God's faith until the coming salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, but for now you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, which make it seem like, wait a minute, that God's that much for me. Why is this happening? This is intentional, God says, so that your faith... Maybe be proved genuine. And listen, not only to you, not only to God in the experiential, I've known that you would be there, but now I've experienced it. But also in this world that is tired of hearing Christians yap about their faith, but never live it. I don't know how many of you ever watched Seinfeld in the episode of the yada yada. <laughs> And the sad thing is, is nowadays when the world hears us talk about our faith in God, they hear yada, yada. What they need to hear is yada. The experiential knowledge. It's time that we Christians stop pointing and saying, the Bible says don't be anxious for anything. And then we're anxious. We're freaking out. Because the economy is so bad you still can't find a parking space at a restaurant but the economy is so bad folks does the economy affect God at all is God ever going to say I really wanted to meet that need but the economy is kind of bad right now get back with me when the market turns up folks I'm grieved by Christian ministries who are out there saying things are down Giving is down. We need you to give at this time. Folks, and I'm going to say to you, like I said to the men today, if everybody stops giving to Just a Preacher Ministries, Just a Preacher Ministries will be fine because God will supply all of my needs. Does He use people? Yes. money out of a fish's mouth if he had to to take care of us. It could fall from the sky. He can do it however he wants. He could have a whale with a belly full of some ship's gold make it up onto the shore and burp in the direction of my house. I don't care how he does it. But we keep thinking. We keep thinking because we look at things with man's eyes. Oh, the giving is down. We really need you at this time. Where's your God? He's still sitting on His throne, but He's waiting for those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. I quote only part of the verse, The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro, looking throughout the earth to show Himself strong on those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. The only way you'll know that your faith is real... That you've been given this new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is through trials. Therefore, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds because it will produce what God wants to do. By the way, the seed fell on the rocky path and when trouble came, it withered and went away because it wasn't real. Why are you running from the only thing that will truly give you the yada experiential knowledge of knowing whether or not you're really saved? Jim, you sound so childlike, and when God... I sound real childlike. God, I said burp. As, as Christ wants us to come as children, as children, I mean, I don't laugh. and we think this is foolish, but you know what? When you are trusting like that, that's exactly how it, we should be. Exactly. Exactly. Go back to 1 Peter and we'll tie this up. And like I told you, we'll come back to verses 8 and 9 next week. is where we'll start. But I want to read it to you and see how this all ties in with what he's talking about. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now I'm going to deal with this more next week, but listen to me. If we're honest, most Christians today, this is not true of. Years ago, when I was at India Atlantic, I was rest, I was dealing with this passage, and it hit me right between the eyes because I didn't have this glorious and inexpressible joy. And I asked some people when I was at India Atlantic, I said, "Would you do me a favor, and could you list for me some people at our church that this applies to? Someone who do you know in our church has glorious and inexpressible joy?" And they went. Mickey bag and I said you didn't list me oh sorry pastor (laughs) and I said no 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 I understand why you didn't list me I'm not in this list either something's wrong and we'll get to what's wrong next week but for tonight for tonight though you haven't seen him you love him there's something here that you might not have ever thought about do you remember when Judas—I'm judas not judas, Thomas wasn't there when Jesus rose from the dead? And everybody said, Hey, we've seen the Lord. And He said, Unless I touch His hands and put my hand in His side, I won't believe. And then Jesus shows up and says, Touch me. Stop doubting and believe. But then Jesus said a very interesting thing. He said this, You've seen and believed. Blessed are those who haven't seen and have yet believed. And you know what? There's a chance that Peter is writing about what Jesus said. Remember, Peter was in the room when that all happened. And there's actually even a chance that what Peter here is writing about is referring to that time when Jesus came into the upper room and said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And there's a chance that Peter wrote this before John wrote his Gospel recording it. The first account of that upper room encounter might be right here. Because there's a chance John was written after this was written. Depending on when you think it was written. We don't know for a fact specific dates, but it's close. Isn't that cool? Yes, ma'am. of us to see our faith proved genuine. But No, it's definitely gonna result in praise and glory. And we're gonna to get to that next week. We're going to tie back in with that. And I'm glad you saw that, though, Susan. It's not just proving our faith genuine. It's also resulting in praise and glory. Right. It's about Him. Exactly. But when we have our faith proved genuine, like I said, the world will see. And then they'll see our good deeds and glorify who? Because they'll know there's no way you could have done that or had that kind of faith or had that kind of response. Like I say, there's so much more I want to deal with. I want to deal with this glorious and inexpressible joy. But for tonight, I think we'll just stop here. And folks, let me just tell you, girls, I'm going to throw you a curveball. Would you be willing to sing that song for us as a close? There is a cool song. They're just going to sing to you the chorus. And it talks about trials and how trials need to be looked at through biblical eyes. You don't mind just standing up here and you're going to sing it. And that will be our close. I'm not going to close in prayer. This will be our close. And then I'll stop the recording. What if your blessings come through raindrops?
1: What if your
0: healing comes through tears?
1: What if a thousand
0: sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? Thank you. Amen.